This podcast is brought to you by SMA, where leading capabilities extend beyond the manufacturing of intelligent inverters to the expert care and maintenance of PV equipment. With services such as grid emulation, commissioning, extended warranty options, and scalable plant-wide O&M, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. Find out more at sma-america.com. For the week of November 13th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello to all, I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we're talking about the biggest financial mistakes clean tech entrepreneurs make when building their companies. Then the U.S. and China have entered into a non-binding but still extremely important climate agreement. Is it a dramatic breakthrough or an overhyped incremental step? And in our last segment, we'll discuss what leaders from around the world think about how to accelerate the clean energy transition. That last theme comes from my co-host, Catherine Hamilton, who is just back today from a trip in Dubai where she was discussing the topic. Uh, she's a partner with the clean tech policy firm 38 North Solutions here in D.C., uh, welcome back to the States, Catherine. What had you in Dubai? You were at the uh, World Economic Forum? Yes. Yeah, this is the Glo- Global Agenda Council's meeting, uh, sort of leading up to Dubai in January, but it's fascinating. So I'm, I'm, ha- I'm really excited to talk more about it. Great. We'll talk about that in the third segment. Uh, Jigger's also been coming to us from foreign places, like uh, his local Starbucks last week. This week, he is actually here in D.C., He surprised us by coming to D.C. this week. We didn't know that. Um, You know him as the founder of Sun Edison and the author of Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, what has you in your old stomping grounds? We are having a retreat for the uh, Brian Robertson Foundation, so I'm happy to be back to uh, support that cause. What does that foundation do? Uh, Well, Brian was one of the co-founders of Sun Edison with me who passed away tragically too young, and so we're... um, we're trying to get uh, solar on 20,000 schools uh, by 2020 and uh, making a lot of progress. It's pretty fun. Love it. Well, also on the line with us from Toronto, Ontario, is our guest, Catherine Ola. She is a financial consultant and principal of the firm Twig Energy, and she's got 20 years as a corporate banker at uh, Deutsche Bank and TD Securities, and now she's using that experience to help clean tech companies raise money. Uh, Catherine, how are things up in, uh, in Toronto? Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Um, little snowy today. First uh, flurries that I've seen them for this uh, summer, for this winter. I'm always jealous because I'm uh, from New Hampshire. Love the snow. We don't get a lot of it here in D.C., but uh, I hear we're going to have a pretty snowy one this winter like we did last winter, so fingers crossed. Catherine, earlier this year, wrote a book called The Decision Maker's Guide to Long-Term Financing which in clear, simple terms lays out the mechanics of different financial transactions that startups might face. Uh, So I contacted her. I picked up the book to educate myself, read through it. I I heard from a friend and colleague that it was a great read, and I quickly decided that I wanted to get Catherine on the show because I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs and students who listen to it. It is the perfect fit, and I think a a good conversation to have for even the most seasoned uh, business veterans. So Catherine... You like to say, and you open up the book this way, that building a business, when building a business, everything is a financial decision. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, that's that's right. That's what I do. Well, you know, as small companies uh, build build their business, they make decisions, all sorts of de- decisions, and oftentimes those de- decisions are kind of opportunistic. When a financier comes in and performs a due diligence investigation, that investigation is all encompassing. So it doesn't just look at the technology or the CEO. It looks at everybody and everything. It looks at the supply agreements and offtake agreements and technology manufacturing, um, sales organization, just everything. So essentially, every decision you make is a financing decision. Every person you hire um, and, and however you set up your company is very important. Do you think that a lot of entrepreneurs understand that? You know, they might get focused on a specific set of challenges that they're trying to address or a specific technology set. Do they take that holistic view of all the decisions that they're making, the ones that you're working with? I would say no. Uh, That's my experience. And entrepreneurs are really good at muddling through, right? They have a certain goal in mind and uh, some things they don't know much about, other things they know a lot about uh, in a very impressive way. And, but they have to bring it all together. And, so I've made that experience uh, recently, for example, uh, a biofuel company, they thought, okay, I need some agreements here in place so that I'm financeable. And they concluded um, offtake agreements, but they ended up being not financeable because the offtaker was not uh, credit worthy and because the term was, was way too, too short, just as an example. All right, well, let's, let's talk about some of the traps that startups fall into. And we'll start with venture capital. There's uh, one that you really point out in your in your book and on the website, and you talk about the issuance of preferred shares without thoughts uh, of the consequences. Explain why this is so important. Yeah, maybe I'll start by pointing out how they fall into this trap. Like, what's what's the psyche that happens? Please do. Uh, yeah. Um, so, it, I mean, young companies, but it can happen to really anybody. Young companies, they have a dream. They're, they're looking for money. They may have already been up and down the road or the street. And uh, now they find some money, maybe two million, maybe four million. Let's just take that in exam- as an example. And they realize, um, you know, so the common shareholders are, are set with friends and family. Now the next round will likely be an angel investor or a venture capital fund. And those financings are typically uh, preferred stock financings, which we call preferred series A stock financing. And they typically come with extensive terms. But the thinking is, maybe I don't completely understand those terms, or maybe they think they do. Um, But in any event, I'm not going to have another round of financing. So I'm not going to run into problems with anti-dilution. I'm not going to run into problems of liquidation. But more often than not, that ex- that's exactly what happens. Um, they think the money that they're raising now will be sufficient to get them to cash flow break even, at which point they're self-sufficient and can raise debt. But what happens more often than not is that they do need more money, that um, maybe the execution of the patent strategy requires more uh, money, or um, there are delays, which is very typical. And then, then they run into these these problems, these hurdles. And if you like, I'm happy to outline them. It takes, takes a little bit of explanation, but I'm happy to do that. Sure. Uh, let me just go to Jigger real quick. And Jigger, you've been on the uh, the other side of the table on this. Any any perspectives you want to share about what Catherine's talking about? 
Oh, I think she's exactly right. I think that, I mean, we turned down the first two term sheets we got at Sun Edison. That's why, you know, ran the company for two years, um, just on, I think, the $97,000 that I had. I mean, that's the other thing I find is that what's shocking to me is how many entrepreneurs I meet now in the clean tech space who actually think that they deserve to get paid a fair salary for the first two years of their company. Um, I mean, if you're not eating ramen noodles and working for minimum wage, then you're not putting enough sweat equity into the deal. <laughs> okay, back to um, the preferred shareholders issue. So eventually, the preferred shareholders, this can lead to them getting double the shares and common shareholders losing control of the company very quickly. Um, how should entrepreneurs be thinking about these early decisions um, so that this doesn't happen? Or w what other types of financing can they perhaps consider? Of course, if, if possible, uh, it would be great to avoid the full ratchet adjustment in the um, in the anti-dilution protection, but maybe it can't be avoided, and then maybe uh, the uh, it's possible to negotiate a time limit of, for example, one year. Also, I would suggest that they stay away from full participating preferred stock, uh, stay away from multiples. But then I'm also wondering, instead of um, going for preferred Series A stock financing, maybe there are other options. Um, what I've done with one of my clients, for example, early stage company, a uh, typical candidate for a venture capital fund, um, we didn't go that route. We we were attracting common shares, but in this case, we were looking for the right high net worth individual, individuals and uh, strategic partners, which we ended up finding. Or there are some new ways to raise funds. One is crowdfunding. It's not that um, you know interesting thing on the internet anymore where you raise $20 uh, per pop. Uh, they're now starting to be really sophisticated and can even compete with, with capital markets. Uh, another idea would be a sale of non-dilutive revenue-based royalties. So if the company has some, some revenues and, and also, you know, somewhat solid gross margin, um, this would be an idea. And in that case, as I said, you're, you're non-dilutive. You don't have to give up board seats. Uh, the, the there is no complicated shareholders agreement. It's pretty straightforward shareholders, or it's pretty straightforward agreement, uh, without without any onerous uh, without any onerous covenants. Yeah, but I but I guess what I would say, Catherine, is one of the things that I'm more concerned about is that you know I do think that investors should push back, and you know, uh, sorry, I mean entrepreneurs should push back, and we never accepted the full ratchet, and what we pushed our angels to do instead is just to take a discount to the next round of financing because the big reason why people ask for the ratchet is they're just not sure how to price the round properly and if they overprice the round they want to get protected but i think um i guess what i'm what i'm trying to figure out is um for me at least it's been very important to work with only the best investors and so i've only taken money from the best investors not the ones who are willing to give me the terms and conditions I want because I rarely want money from investors. I actually want their name recognition, their expertise, and some of the other things they can bring to the table. Yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, there's really a differentiation between strategic investor and financial investor. And uh, but in both cases, that that could apply that they bring not only the money but the name and contacts and other value adds to the table for sure. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a a big thing that you go over in the book too. I mean. 
when raising money, do you go after the strategic investor, which has experience in the industry you're in, or the financial investor, which is just looking for a good deal? Um, anything else you think people should consider when looking at the two very different uh, investors attitudinally? Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to be said about that. It really depends what you're after. So if if you're more after money and you have the ability to provide uh, the return and the exit that a financial investor would ask for, then that is a good route to take. Um, if you're looking for support on maybe rolling out the product or implementing the product or whatever it is, uh, maybe there's higher risk involved that a strategic investor will understand better. If, if it really makes sense to a strategic investor, then you may not have to give up as much of the company either. So, you know, those are those are things to be discerned. So it it seems, uh, Catherine, uh, that there are a lot of companies that are really eager to go public in our sector. Um, and, of course, they're going to have access to a lot more capital when they do that. But as you as you note in some of your blogs, you know, you then you lose the ability to be nimble, you lose control, nothing goes under the radar. And, and you note in your book that going public is as much a philosophy as it is a way of raising funds. And I would love for you to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, that's right. It, it is a philosophy because it, it changes dramatically how you run your company. You, you can't make quick decisions anymore. You have to be consistent with the business plan that you've put out there. Um, you lose your control and confidentiality because you're constantly in the public eye. And also your processes, you know, they can't be low-key anymore. They have to be uh, at a standard that is suitable for a public company. Uh, you have to have reporting um, set up. Uh, it, it can be quite cumbersome. And that's why I mean it is as much a philosophy as it is a way of raising funds. Um because it just changes the way you run your company so much. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not overly concerned about the publicly traded nature of it. I'm more concerned about all these companies that are going public through the pink sheets. I mean, there's whether it was One Roof Energy or Lime Energy. There's all these companies who have basically sort of gone public through um, a reverse merger into a public shell, and then gotten some financing through that. And it just seems like a really unstable way for clean tech companies to raise money. And on top of that, some of those investors in those stocks um, don't seem to play very nice. You know, they'll sell all their shares without telling you first. And um, I mean, you saw that with Capstone Infrastructure as well in, in Toronto. You know, I honestly, I learned a lot reading through this book. And I'm just wondering if you think that there's like a financial literacy problem among entrepreneurs and how important is it to break these concepts down in a in the right way so that people can understand them and make the proper decisions that we're talking about. What I noticed is that entrepreneurs uh, um, mix up terms uh, for sure. And sometimes maybe there is no clarity on what exactly is debt financing, equity financing, project financing, etc. cetera. Um, but I still would call it less of a problem and more of an opportunity because my experience really is that entrepreneurs are very creative and, and they find a way to muddle through with some results, maybe not the optimum result. Um, now, that's why I would like to say it's an opportunity. So if they're better at it, they definitely will save time and money and they will secure the terms that they want. 
Uh, and that's really what, what the book is meant to be. It's a tool for that purpose, that they save time and money and, and secure the terms that they want with confidence. Hmm. Great read, important for, I think, most of the people who listen to this podcast to take a look at. Uh, so it is Catherine Ole. She is the principal of Twig Energy and author of the Decision Maker's Guide to Long-Term Financing. Very helpful resource. Uh, Catherine, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks. Let's uh, take a minute now to get a word in about our sponsor, SMA. To ensure maximum output of a system, it's important to have a watchful and proactive eye on your investment. With SMA's state-of-the-art solar monitoring center, experts are able to utilize advanced real-time monitoring capabilities to analyze performance, detect potential issues, and resolve matters remotely. Or, if needed, you can dispatch field service engineers to get your system back on track quickly. Maximize performance and minimize downtime with SMA service, where your success is top priority. Find out more at sma-america.com. Historic, a landmark, unprecedented. Those are the words people are using to describe the deal this week between China and the U.S. to limit carbon dioxide emissions. The deal is the first time China, the biggest carbon emitter in the world, has ever agreed to a cap on its emissions. But it's also not legally binding. So how historic will it be through the lens of history? Before I get reactions uh, from you, Jigger and Catherine, I should probably give a little bit of detail on what the uh, two countries agreed on. China said it will peak its emissions by 2030 with an intention to try to peak before that. Intention being a slippery word here. Uh, it also set a goal of getting 20% of its primary energy from renewables by that date. The U.S. already had a voluntary goal created during the, Copen the Copenhagen climate meeting in 2009 of 17% carbon emission reductions by 2020. And the new target will bring that target to um, between 26 and 28% by 2025, which the president says can happen without any new policy. So there is much debate about the deal. Some think it's very unrealistic. Others believe it's not nearly enough. What does the gang think? We'll go to uh, Jigger on this first. You have said it's a successful departure from the multilateral process pushed at the UN. Yeah, so I have like 50 different thoughts on this. Um, you know, I, I love Mike Grunwald, who now is at Politico and wrote uh, the great book about the, um, the stimulus funding uh, and how successful it was. And his line is that, um, many many folks who talk about the Stone Age not ending because we ran out of stones seem to forget the Stone Age didn't end because the world's leaders held press conferences to announce non-binding agreements on long-range stone limitation goals. Um, <laughs> I didn't so see that one. That's good. I thought that was yeah, pretty he's a awesome. Good writer. But you know, I have to say that look, I think that the fact that President Obama uh, dispatched John Podesta and John Kerry to um, China, like basically at the beginning of his second term to figure this out. And we actually got this on the record, I think is a big deal because, you know, the funny thing is, is that almost all of it is solar and wind. I mean, no one believes the CCS crap that's in there, but, um, but it's, well, there's a lot of nuclear too. There's a lot of nuclear. Well, the nuclear is going to be great. I mean, China is really good at, you know, abandoning human rights to build nuclear plants. But I think in terms of the Paris negotiations next year, I think the fact that the two largest emitters in the world are coming to those negotiations with a deal in hand 
makes a big, big difference. Yeah. And it was interesting because I was in Dubai when this broke and I was uh, so there's no MSNBC. There's no Fox News. It was all Al Jazeera, Bloomberg. You know, I was listening to different channels than I would normally be able to see in the U.S. And, you know, China is in big trouble. And it's not just because they won't let people do Facebook. I mean, the pollution is causing huge civil unrest. And even during this conference, they made all the cars get off the road so the air wouldn't be so dirty during all these talks. Um, and they're putting between China and India, there's a new coal fired power plant put online every week. So China's actually pretty bullish on CCS. But um, I totally agree with Jigger that this is huge for the U.S. to take this stand. And um, I can I, I'd be happy to kind of do the policy narrative on that because I have some thoughts about um, what this means from a policy standpoint. Yeah, but let me let me quick comment on your Cole comment there, because I think that's absolutely right. And we've discussed this a couple of times over the last year. And that is China has been moving on the international climate stuff because it's under pressure within its own country. People are rioting in the streets over coal pollution. People are choking on this stuff and dying at record rates compared to other countries. And they know they have a problem. And that's a leadership problem when the people start rioting in the streets. So I think that is the key element here. Yeah. And expats that have been living in China for business reasons are moving their families out because they don't want their families living there. I've had two friends that have come back one worked for the State Department, and one uh, was a teacher, and they both had to come back because they got sick from pollution. Well, also, when, when President Putin's hitting on your wife, <sighs> you got to be like, hey, we got to get a deal done with the U.S. Wait, wh- why am I missing oh, this? Oh, there was the weirdest drama because he put a coat on the First Lady of China, and, and they had to, like, scrub all the news after that so, so that they wouldn't show that he'd put it on and that she had taken it off. It was really weird. I'm not right. And he had just gotten divorced from his wife finally of 30 years. And so, oh, so much drama. So clearly, I'm not watching the right news channel here. <laughs> you need to be watching Yahoo Entertainment Channel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Back to seriousness, Catherine, the policy implications here domestically, because I think that's where we start getting into some troubles, too. Well, it's interesting because, okay, the pledge from the U.S. is to cut emissions 26 to 28 percent economy wide. So if you break that down into a couple of big buckets, we have the EPA 111D rule, which really deals with about 25 percent of the electric sector. But if you look at it economy wide, it's only about 10 percent. And then CAFE standards, which is about 50 percent of the transport sector, but only about 10 percent economy wide. That adds up to 20 percent that you can get from those two things that are ongoing, 111D and CAFE. Now, there's also methane regs that are supposed to come out by the end of the year, and it's unclear um, how what percentage of that's going to be. It's still, we still need you know, to make up 6 to 8% um, from something else. But So it remains to be seen if the methane regs are going to help make up for that. But the best news about this is this will backstop 111D levels. You won't see the Obama administration trying to backslide on them. And in fact... It'll not only be tougher for them to become less ambitious, they may even to get need to be more ambitious on those targets, which they're fully able able to do just because just based on existing RPSs and states, they can meet a lot of the targets. So, I mean, it, it's going to be really interesting and, and it's going to give the administration some support in being able to fight Congress on backsliding. Yeah, but will Congress really go with it? I mean, Congress wants to defund anything related to the UNFCC process. 
They want to potentially defund our commitments to developing countries for climate adaptation and mitigation. You know, you've got a number of governors coming into states that are not going to be sympathetic to Obama's plan. I see a lot more headwinds here than than you might. I don't. I actually don't think that Congress has any they are not veto proof on any of those at all. I think Obama's going to hang tough. And and honestly the view overseas coming from you know watching it from somewhere else unfold, people internationally really believe that Obama's on the right track here with EPA. They did not even talk about Congress at all. So let's talk about the energy implications here. In China they're particularly stark, right? So f- uh we were they're looking at a 20% uh, penetration of renewables, primary energy by 2020. They've already got a 15% target. So a 5% increase doesn't sound like a lot, but that's about one terawatt of capacity uh, because of the projected growth in China's energy consumption. That's like almost as much as the entire U.S. electricity capacity. So huge opportunity for renewables here. There's going to be a lot of hydro as well, probably a lot of nuclear uh, well, definitely a lot of nuclear. They've already got like a 50 gigawatt nuclear target, and they're going to significantly ramp that up. So I think that there are some clear challenges in this, right? I mean, 15 years is a long time for the economics of renewables to change. Uh, so we have to take that into account. But Roger Pilkey Jr. over at the University of Colorado made a really good point, And he said that that's going to require China to build roughly a nuclear power plant every day per day uh, over the next 15 years. So that's pretty monumental undertaking, and I think uh, just for some context, important to realize. And then I was reading um, some conservative commentary, and uh, Patrick Michaels, who I follow over the Libertarian Cato Institute, he's uh, himself a climate skeptic, not a big fan of renewables. Uh, He had a piece that I think is kind of notable here. The agreement obviously isn't binding, and and that's a, a big caveat to all this. Uh, China only said it intends to reach these goals. Um, And China, of course, said in 2009 that it intended to reduce its emissions per unit of GDP by more than 40 percent. It's made incremental progress there, although I have seen some academic research that suggests it has accelerated in recent years and it could potentially reach that target by 2025. But it's important to, to note that intentions don't always mean actual execution. And I think there is a place for skepticism here. So it's just some interesting points to keep in mind as we put this in context. Right, but I don't want to get give some of these guys as much of an inch as you're giving them. I mean, Roger Pilkey Jr. basically separately in his piece said that, you know, that what Obama's signing up to is going to create real unemployment in the United States. The last line in his blog was, while China has good intentions, we get real unemployment. Such a deal. Um, which is absolutely ridiculous. We're going to create more jobs by deploying American technology and resource efficiency solutions than, you know, than trying to do the old uh, stodgy stuff that we're replacing. And so, look, I think this is a great deal. I think it's great that Obama's out there. I think it's great that he's basically putting it on us, the entrepreneurs, to deliver. Yeah. I think I want to I correct you on that. I think that was Patrick Michaels who said that, not Roger Pilkey. Patrick Michaels is uh, very skeptical of this transition. I think you're right. Sorry about that. No, no, that's fine. But uh, I think it is important to be a little bit skeptical of this, right? It is very exciting. My take is that it's a very important development worth worth all the press. We d- it deserves the attention it got. It is 
a, an historic change that China would actually come out and say that it intends to develop these targets. And it creates momentum going into the UN climate negotiations in 2015. But I am a little bit skeptical because of the politics in the U.S. I know Catherine's more positive on that, and she certainly knows more about those mechanics than I do. Um, and, you know, when you look at China's actual commitment to peak emissions in 2030, that's well past what scientists say we need to peak emissions to avoid the worst warming scenarios. So there's yeah. a lot in here that makes me pretty skeptical, although I, I, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the actual positivity of China making a commitment like this. And as you said at the beginning, Jigger, the importance of the movement the Obama administration made in negotiations, the fact that they were able to negotiate this and send their two top people to do that is, uh, you know, that's a feather in their cap. Yeah, I think there's a couple more points that I'd, I'd want to make here. One is that I think the IEA, right, which is notoriously conservative, is saying that Chinese coal is going to peak in 2019, right? And I think you can bank on it. So I think, I think that's real. So I think China's going to peak emissions um, economy-wide before 2030, right? I think the other piece of this is, as I've been harping on, on numerous occasions on this podcast, the Energy Information Administration is a complete joke. And if, if nothing else comes out of this except that they finally have to follow a frickin' president and fix their goddamn models, that would be, like, huge historic movement. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean in the context of this? Well, if you think about the carbon emissions that the president's promising here, EIA's own, like, you know, like, projections are showing only half of those carbon savings. They're showing only half of the coal plants that are going to get retired, only half of the fact that of renewables that are going to get deployed, only half as much of the energy efficiency that's going to get deployed. I mean, they're basically betting against the president. We do appreciate the work you do. You find people over at EIA. I know there are some of you who are out there. Um, but that's interesting that you know they basically assume a no policy change scenario. And as we learned this week, those policies can change pretty quickly. Although it should be noted that this is not necessarily a pol an official policy yet, but uh, certainly targets that will have an impact on technology acceleration in the country. So uh, it, it definitely shows how sometimes EIA's modeling can be out of touch with those rapid changes. Yeah, and let's see what happens when when 111D becomes the final rule and see you know see if they change some of their assumptions then. Yeah, seriously, that'll be interesting. All right, so let's make predictions here. Do you think we're going to see a legally binding treaty in 2015 that is helped by this agreement? Jigger, you go first. No, of course not. But I, but I do think that we are going to have real bilateral agreements being done by many of the G20 with each other that will result in huge amounts of increased sales for companies that we're, we're talking about on this podcast. Catherine, what about you? Uh, I agree with Jigger, and I also would reiterate that I think we're going to see India move as well. Totally agree with both of those. Darn, I was hoping that we would disagree somehow. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've watched enough of this to know that we should be very cautious about reading too much into this and expecting a legally binding treaty in 2015. That's a big difference between a voluntary commitment like this and something that's legally binding. But we'll see. Certainly a much different uh, scenario than a week ago. All right, let's uh, end the show with our third topic. We're going to talk about Catherine's trip. Uh, the World Economic Forum is an international body that brings together public and private figures to talk about big issues of the day. And those issues are often a bit depressing. 
In its 2015 Global Agenda report, the World Economic Forum points to a growing income inequality, joblessness, a disconnect between politicians and voters, water stress, severe weather, and more carbon pollution as some of its trends to watch next year. Catherine was at the meeting last week in Dubai to talk about the clean energy solutions that fit into those challenges. And although I I can't imagine, Catherine, that you came to any other higher truths than those already found on this podcast each week, it sounded like uh, you had a pretty stimulating discussion. So I want to talk about that. Um, where, what were you guys talking about there? Where does clean energy fit into this big, broad global agenda at the World Economic Forum? Yeah, you're right. It is a broad agenda. It's pretty amazing. Um, it's It was called the Network of Global Agenda Councils, and it's, it was the Summit on Global Agenda. The councils cover everything from sustainability, tourism, illicit trade, Ebola, water, robotics. Everybody wanted to be in the robotics one. It seemed so cool. Cities. And I was in one called the Future of Electricity. So there are 80 of these councils, and there are about 20 people in each, but only maybe a dozen actually make it to one of these conferences. So my little group, my little cohort on the future of electricity included like the minister of energy for Nigeria, uh, the deputy minister for Mexico, you know, the, the, the number two person at one of the biggest European utilities, um, somebody from a Brazil think tank who, who was a regulator for the entire uh, you know, bulk power system in Brazil. There was a consumer research think tank there, um, Lord John Mogg, who was the former chairman of Ofgem. I mean, there were just a bunch of really incredibly smart people in my group. I felt completely uh, – oh, Kande Yumkela was in my group too, the UN, uh, United Nations Under Secretary General, and he's the head of the Sustainable Energy for All initiative. So there were just incredibly smart people in this group. And we were told, all right, you need, guys need to come up with, you know, what's going to be the future of electricity? And that it's a very broad topic. And what was amazing to me is that everybody was in consensus on what it could look like. And it wasn't based on technology. It was based on what problems are you trying to solve and what are the characteristics you need in a system? And what that meant was that it was very based on consumers, consumer engagement. There was no discussion of anything other than clean energy and flexible capacity like solar and storage and demand response and efficiency. There was just nobody who said, I think we need to do CCS or I think we need to do more nuclear power plants. It just didn't come up because everybody there was really had their heads around, let's figure out how to get electricity to people don't have it. And also, how do we get electricity in a, in a more in a grid that's fully built, but that we need to move to a different level? Huh. It was it was completely stunning to me. Kanda Yumkela, I've talked to him a couple times, and I've had an interview with him asking about the breakdown of what types of projects that it wants to support. And you know, they're trying to walk this line between supporting flexible natural gas plants and some nuclear while also doing a lot of with microgrids and and local renewables. And so I'm wondering, did you hear any talk about um, that potential conflict between wanting to deploy as much energy as possible, which could include a lot of fossil energies versus that, that flexible renewable capacity? Well, it's interesting. We had these kind of cross conversations. We had one with the decarbonizing group that was focused on CCS. And then we had a conversation with the oil and gas group who was focused on how do we how do we uh, retain our industry? <laughs> and, um, you know, so some of that conversation came up. But honestly, 
we did not focus on technology. It just turned out that that's ever, those were the technologies people were thinking of when you asked them, well, what do you think the technologies are going to look like? But we never made it technology-based. We just said, all right, what are the characteristics we want in a system? And based on those characteristics, the only things that could meet those characteristics were clean, flexible energy sources. Um, so that was that was pretty cool. I, I thought it was because I'm so U.S. centric and so, you know, really based in kind of the wonky universe I'm in, it was really good for me to get out there and talk to a lot of people um, who had other experiences, some of whom spoke the same language, like somebody next to me said ancillary services. And I just about like, you know, (laughs) it was like I went to the moon. I was so happy. Um, What was cool was that, you know, a lot of people have similar issues all around the world, whether it's in a developing country or a fully developed country, um, but they have different approaches. And so it was really, really va- valuable to be in that conversation and hear that. And I feel like I could bring a lot of that back here with me. All right. Let me put on my cynics hat here, Catherine. Many of these meetings, right? I picture people in these white rooms with these big white boards drinking Dasani water bottles and talking about <laughs> the world's problems and whiteboard, you know, putting out their vision on a whiteboard and then walking away, you know, thinking that they've solved the world's problems and they put it in a report, it sits on a shelf and then they come back the next year and do the same thing and drink champagne and slap each other on the back. And, you know, I know that that's um, gross generalization, but that's kind of the image I have in my head for many of these <laughs> meetings. And I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on that. That's funny. That's exactly what I thought when I was going over there. Uh, there was water, bottled water, because you were in the desert. And if you didn't drink <laughs> the water, you were going to faint. There was no champagne because it is a Muslim country. So just to put that in perspective. But um, there were people, we were talking and writing on whiteboards, but actually I was completely convinced when we left that we have projects, we have assignments, and and we've made connections with whom we have to follow up and we're going to produce something. We have a two-year term and we have deadlines when we have to have things done. So I really think it's going to be productive. I mean, I'll, I'll wait and see what happens in the end, but I really did have my mind changed once I had gone through the process. Yeah. So I've done a lot of work with the World Economic Forum. And for me personally, I think where it really makes a big difference is in um, in the transactions on the ground. I mean, there's a lot of transactions that are probably on hold in Nigeria right now. And when this guy gets back to Nigeria, he'll be more likely to sign um, some of the PPAs sitting on his desk. Um, even Kande Mkela, like the first time I met him about four years ago, he was like, you know, arguing uh, with me about how um, Africa deserved more coal, particularly the coal bed methane plant in Botswana. And I don't think he argues for that stuff anymore, which is a big change. Yeah. And we had there was a group of investors and they basically they were institutional investors. They poo pooed a lot of stuff we were talking on. But they said, look, if you can bring us a business case, if you guys can make a case for this, you know, this is something we might consider. And so I I do think those linkages could be made and it could make a difference. All right. Listeners, we're going to tell you something you do not know. We're going to try to anyway. And Catherine, you're on a roll, so you get to go first. (laughs) Okay. So I have to talk again about the Expire Act because there's more drama now that it's the lame duck and the Affleck duck is going that because Now the big GOP donors are really pushing the Republicans to cut the PTC and um, Americans for Prosperity, Heritage Action for America, 
Um, I mean, a lot of these guys don't like any of the extenders at all, but the PTC is really in their sights. And so I'm not sure how it's going to all work out. I'm worried that they're going to try to cut a deal that only has it for a year, the package to be extended for a year, which basically isn't anything because all it does is go retroactively to when everything expired in 2013. Um, But the Koch group is um, they're targeting 25 Republicans around the country, including uh, Kevin Brady of Texas, who is up for uh, chair of Ways and Means, which is tax writing committee on the House side. And so, you know, and he's in leadership. And if they're targeting him, they're targeting a lot of other Republicans in um, really high wind districts who haven't really taken a position yet. And so there is a big worry that, um, you know, it's just not that that it's really, really in trouble. Jager, tell us something we do not know. So I just got to get one more dig in on EIA first. Um, <laughs> Jeez. So they, they put out they put out a, a release to uh, this this week saying that gasoline prices were going to average less than three dollars a gallon uh, next year, um, but they didn't cut their forecast for oil and gas production next year, even though every other Wall Street bank has cut their production forecast for next year. So it seems like they want their cake and eat it too. Um, and then separately, Oil Change International came out with this great report. The G20 um, pledged to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies, particularly for production subsidies. And they show that basically the G20 has actually increased their uh, their production subsidies to $88 billion a year now. Um, and the U.S. is no different. The U.S. has increased its production subsidies using a very strict, narrow definition from about – one point nine billion a year to five billion dollars last year, so it's uh, you know in the wake of the U.S. China climate um, announcement, it seems like we're going backwards on fossil fuel subsidies. Yeah, the IEA has been very good at pointing that out, and the EIA production cuts. Did they explain why they weren't uh, following those scenarios that others were? Yeah, Wall Street basically said that you know they thought at today's oil prices, about a third of all fracking investments in the United States are no longer profitable. All of the uh, major fracking companies in the United States this last week said that they were going to revisit their capital budgets. So they were pretty honest about that. And EIA chose just to ignore the information and say, well, I think people are just going to keep fracking at last year's levels and um, continue to keep production up. Yeah, I don't know, though. I don't think anyone really knows. I mean, OPEC is keeping its production up uh, to kind of test the waters and see how price sensitive the fracking is in in the U.S. And, you know, I don't I don't know that anyone has figured that out yet. I mean, I've seen estimates that 80 percent of the fracking operations for um, oil are still profitable at um, oil prices around, you know, $70 a barrel. So. Well, I mean, like all, I, all I'd say is that it's extraordinary how responsive EIA is to fracking data when they update our stuff, like yeah. you know, once every other year. All right. Well, I've got two quick things to round out the show. First, uh, the DOE is out with a report today showing that it has made uh, thirty million dollars from the loan guarantee program. It has netted thirty million dollars for taxpayers even when accounting for all the bankruptcies that we've heard so much about. And uh, the report goes on to conclude that it could, the DOE could make back about 5 to $6 billion for taxpayers when all is said and done. Um, so I've got a quick story up at Green Tech Media. The report was released today, and I mention it because we've got an interview with Jonathan Silver, the former executive director of DOE's loan programs office, who will be with us in mid-December 
And I think everyone's going to want to hear that because he has been very outspoken about this issue since he left office. So it should be fun conversation. And um, secondly, Jigger, you asked me to provide some survey results last week, so I'll do that. Probably more interesting to me and us than our listeners, but there are a few key ones. Um, Firstly, three-quarters of you listen every single week or every other week. And 10% of you store up podcasts and listen in bulk when you can. That's me. That's how I am with all my podcasts, so I feel you on that. Um, 94% of you listen all the way through or, or, or most through most of it. Um, 57% of you listen while you're on your commute. That's also me. Um, 18% of you listen while at the gym. I'm not a big podcast listener at the gym. That's probably because I'm a power lifter and I listen to heavy metal. Uh, 70% of you are in the clean energy industry, and you are spread all throughout the industry with more of you in solar or politics than in any other area. And 96% of you, oh, good for you, 96% of you picked one, of, one or two of our sponsors correctly, the current one being SMA, the inverter manufacturer. So uh, I've got tons of other stuff, uh, like what you want to hear about on the show. That's a very long list. All in all, you've uh, shown yourselves to be a very engaged audience, so we love you all, even if some of you don't listen every week. That's going to do it for the show. GreenTechMedia.com slash podcast is where you can go to find links to stories we discussed on this podcast. Next week, we are going to be in San Francisco for a live show at the ACEEE Intelligent Efficiency Conference. Ben Bixby of Nest will be there, and Catherine Winkler, another Catherine. The Chief Sustainability Officer of EMC Corporation will also be there. That should be a fun discussion. Thanks to all of you for being with us each week. Thank you so much to our sponsor, SMA. And thanks to my co-hosts. Catherine, we'll see you on the West Coast next week. Absolutely. Can't wait. Jigger, you'll probably be out there already, right, with your office there? Exactly. All right, cool. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.